we're going to be in 1 Samuel. We're going to pick up in the next chapter in 1 Samuel 30. So David had been living in Ziklag, right? And he had been living among the Philistines. That's where we were last week. Achish, the king, welcomed him in. And David's been telling him, I've been fighting against Israel, and I've been having victory there. And so Achish thinks he's mine. He's, he's on our side. But really, he's been fighting against the enemies of Israel and winning battles there and getting wealthy there. And so the king asked David to go to war with him on his side. And David now caught, right, between do I, I, do I admit I'm not against Israel or do I go and fight against Israel, right? Because really, David isn't against Israel and he hasn't been fighting against Israel and he doesn't want to fight with the Philistines. The Philistines are his enemies, but they've been letting him live there. And so as he walks it out, he's confronted with what do I do this rock in a hard place, if you will. And so as they travel out to go to war against Israel, the other leaders of the Philistines begin to tell Achish, hey, we don't trust him. Well, listen, he's been here for 16 months, man. He's been fighting against Israel, man. He's on our side. And they said, I don't care. We don't trust him. And so they send him away. And David's like, Phew. right? Like, I don't know how we're going to do that. And yet God meets him in that moment, right? God prevents him from having to either turn against the Philistines or go and fight against his own people. So here's a note for you. Here's where we're going to start. The highs and the lows of life. God allows or even causes good and bad seasons of life. We are to live knowing that God is good and accomplishing things that we cannot even see or understand. God allows these highs and lows. He even sometimes causes them. And what we can't see is what God is doing in the moment. We can't see all that God is doing on our behalf. But we live in such a way, we can live in such a way, we need to live in such a way that we trust what God is doing. No matter what we can see, no matter if it's a good season or a bad season, whether you're living with the Philistines or you're on top of the world, we trust that God is doing these things on our behalf. And, and for our good, and for his glory. Will you pray with me? God, as we gather this morning, we're grateful for this day, this, this day in the church calendar that reminds us of the life of Christ and his uh, birth that we just celebrated, it feels like just did in December. And I know we say this probably every Easter, but it just seems so short how we got from here to there. And even in these hard times, it seems like time is flying by. And so here we are in that season where we celebrate Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And yes, the people cry out, Hosanna. Jesus, they want to make you king. But it's just going to be a matter of a couple days, three days, four days. And they're going to shout for your death. The highs and the lows, Jesus, that you experience in these next eight days are incredible but they remind us that you have lived the life that we are called to live and you've done it flawlessly without sin. So Jesus, teach us how to be more like you. It's in your name we pray, amen. First Samuel chapter 30, we're gonna pick up there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the seat in front of you or if you're in the front row, the seat underneath you maybe, right? And you could follow along. Verse one, now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negev and against Ziklag. 
And they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. So this is the city that David's been living in. David and his 600 fighting men and their families. And they've been raiding other cities, enemies of Israel, God's people's enemies. And they've been taking captive all their animals and putting everybody to death. And living in this city called Ziklag, which ends up no long, which is currently a Philistine territory. But from the time David moves in, as scripture is written, it stays a part of Israel. So David keeps this, fortifies it, builds it up, gets wealthy there. And so as the king calls him to go to war with them, and he trots off as if he's going to go to war with them and not against them, God obviously diverts him from having to do that. But meanwhile, the Amalekites, now remember who the Amalekites are, right? King Saul is called to go to the Amalekites and kill them all. Wipe them all out. Man, woman, child, animal, bird, parakeet, whatever, right? Kill them all. Because of their wickedness, because of their child sacrifice, because of the, the wickedness that they did, God said, put them all to death. Saul goes in and he kills most, but not all. And he tries to keep the good things for himself. Well, here's what happens. They end up becoming the constant thorn in Israel's flesh. Here they are. David goes off. God has provided for him. He's coming back. But in the meantime, the Amalekites have come in and wiped out Ziglag, burned the city down, burned all the homes they'd built up, and they take all the people with them. Now, there's this note from the author. It says they killed no one, but carried them off. Now, this author note, to us, written after the fact, is not known to David. David and his men don't know that everybody's still alive and everybody's okay. Verse 3, and when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, of Carmel. So there's the appearance of death and destruction. There's a, an appearance of everything being destroyed. Now, the bodies aren't there, but it's unknown. Are they alive? Are they well? Where are they, right? Now, how would you handle this? You go out faithfully, obedient to God, right? You're living your life. You're, you're doing what God has called you to do. The, the, the hard things, the easy things, you're, you're doing that. And you come home and you've lost everything, right? Now just put yourself in that moment, right? And it's, it's not hard, kind of, to understand that. I mean, maybe if you've lived through, you know, some of the storms that we've had over in the Gulf and things like that, maybe you experienced that, right? But imagine you come home and there's nothing, right? That's what David comes home to and his obedient, God-fearing men, and so, how would you handle it? Would you trust in God, or would you let your feelings get the best of you? That's a hard, hard question. I mean, just look back at the last 14, 15 months, right? Have we been the church that has just been so faithful and trusting in God and unified and prayerful and, I don't need to go on, right? We checked out at trusting in God, right? Okay, so we know we get all up in our feelings, right? We know that. Well, let's read the next verse, figure out how they do it. So, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. 
But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So David spends time with God. David strengthens himself in the Lord. The other people want to stone David, right? Now remember, we just read, or Ashley just read in our, in our liturgy reading, it's well known that Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. There was a song that was sung amongst the Israelites. Even the Philistines know that and quote that to the king and say, listen, man, I don't trust David, right? Which was God's sovereignty excusing David from that war, right? It was God's way of diverting him. But then you come back and this is what you see. Now they go from singing David's praises to let's kill him. His own men, let's kill him. Right? It says because they were bitter in soul. Now I know that's none of you, right? But there's two responses. Either we trust God or we don't trust God. And notice when they don't trust God, who they blame. Oh, there's always a person you can blame, right? Well, here's a note for us. Our last year, COVID, politics, racial tensions, all of it, found us blaming others often. Has blaming others helped anything? The outcome was further division and pain, right? Oh, it's liberals. No, it's conservatives. Oh, it's Democrats. No, it's Republicans. Oh, it's Trump. No, it's Biden. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. It's people that are afraid of the virus. Oh, it's people that are not afraid enough of the virus. It's people that are compliant. It's people that are fighting back. It's, it's cops. It's this. It's that. There's plenty of blame, always, to go around. Well, can't we just back up and admit none of those groups of people can fix the problem? Right? Neither team, whoever you voted for, your team can't fix it either. Right? If we could fix it, we'd have, done, we'd have fixed it. Right? The only thing that blame and fear has given us is if you're a politician. They garner power from division and fear and pain. The more afraid, the more angry you are, the more likely you are to give to their campaign or vote for them or whatever. And so they thrive on the division, right? You've heard of intersectionality and, and division and all the ways that are, that are going around. But we, the church, those who follow God should be different. We shouldn't participate in the division. In fact, we should be the unity, right? We should be the ones that are able to come together. But I can promise you, over the last 13, 14, 15 months, right, any decision made had two polar responses. You get them both. Literally, I would get emails back to back, right? We're the church. We should be trusting in God. That doesn't make I make every right decision, by the way. Maybe I'm wrong. But are we trusting in God or are we just blaming others and essentially mean we trust in others? Verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he, meaning God, pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. So David calls for the ephod. You guys, we've, we taught through Exodus when this was created, right? This is the priestly garments, and inside of them were the Urim and the Thummim. There was kind of that divine coin toss, if you will, but there were also lots of things, just stones that represent all the tribes of Israel, the promises of God kind of woven in and engraved in, and, and David calls upon the priest. So what does David do when everything goes wrong? Let's ask God, right? 
And he's been fairly consistent with that. He got spooled up a couple weeks ago and let his feelings get the best of him. He's not perfect. He's not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. But David tends to seek God first. So now somebody's come in and kind of burned his city to the ground. His wives are missing. Everything, everybody's missing. And so he inquires of God. God says, pursue them. You'll be victorious. Verse 9. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Baser, where those who were left behind stayed. And David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted across the brook. Right. So the 600 fighting men go out, and for whatever reason, these 200 men are tired, and they stay behind here, and so they kind of set up camp here, and the 400 continue on. Verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins, and when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. So there's this Egyptian servant who had been a servant of the Amalekites. The Amalekites had come in and wiped out Ziklag, the city that David and his men and his families were living in, and as they're pursuing him, they drop off 200 men, 400 continue. And they find this servant of the Amalekites, an Egyptian. And so they ask him, hey, do you know where the people are? Right? Verse 13, and David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to, me by, to, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So will you take me to this band of raiders, these Amalekites? Will you take me there? And he says, if you won't kill me and hand, or you won't hand me back over to them because they'll kill me, yes, I'd love to, right? Like I'd, clearly, he's not, he has no love loss for them. He got sick and they just leave him behind, right? So it's not like this is a loving family, right? So... He says, sure, just don't hand me off to them. And when he had taken him down, behold, verse 16, and they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening to the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Sometimes you're the bug, sometimes you're the windshield, Right? And that's what happens. David, they're dancing and, and happy, and they're celebrating all this victory and spoil, and they're drinking and doing their thing. And David comes in and smashes them for a day and a half and wipes them all out, except for these that got away on camels. It says, David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Just imagine this protracted beating that they take, Right? as God gives them the victory. Verse 18, now David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. I love this line, nothing was missing, right? David got back all. Small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. The point here, God gives David and his men back everything. Nothing is lost, right? But again, remember when David pulled into camp. Remember when he and his men pulled in. And all you see is a burned city and everybody gone. 
You clearly don't know what God is doing in that moment. You clearly don't understand God's plan, like why I was being obedient out here. I was doing what you asked me to do. But then, God, I come home, and literally, I don't have a home to come home to. Not only do I not have a structure to call home, but I don't have a family here. See, we go through highs and lows in life. David's highs are when he is in Ziklag and he is conquering other people, the enemies of God's people. He's out there and he's getting wealthy off this. Now, this is not where he wants to be. Ziklag was a Philistine area, village, city, right? That, that they give him out in the wilderness. But God profits him there. God benefits him there. God blesses him there. So he remains. Kind of a, a low becomes kind of a high, if you will, right? And so then there's this, hey, you're going to go out to, to fight against your own people. Clearly, a low in his head. As he's saying one thing, but he really means another. And then they release him. Whew, okay, we're back on top. Like, all things are good. God's still there. Then you show up at home. And your city's burned to the ground. And your wife and your family and your stuff, everything's missing. You're back down in the valley. I mean, that's the life, right? That's the life you and I live. Some of these polar extremes, these highs and lows. And admittedly, sometimes everything proverbially hits the fan. And where are we in that? Are we trusting in God that God is good and, and that God has a plan? We're being called out to war that we don't want to be in. Are we trusting in God? We see everything raised to the ground. Are we trusting in God? Or do we just tend to trust Him on the mountaintops, the peaks, the high points? The place where God is evident and obvious. Oh, our team won the election, or, or, or this, or, or hey, we get to go back to church, which we love celebrating those things, but is God only good when we're sitting here in person, or is God good when we're trapped at home online only? That's what God is asking us. Verse 20, David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. All right, this is David's spoil. Yay, David. All right, my team won, right? Just five minutes ago, they want to kill him. It was his fault when he was with them, right? It was his fault that the families were gone, the city was burned down. Now they come in and they're victorious in this battle and they get everything back and they're like, woo, it's David, right? It sounds like every election cycle, right? <laughs> Something goes wrong, clearly it's your fault. We win, woohoo, we won, right? Like, just like they blame David, they shouldn't give the credit to David either, right? David didn't do this. Here's an example today, right? We've got Biden in office now, doesn't matter if you like him, love him, hate him, doesn't matter if you voted for him or the other guy, whatever. But every president comes in and says, look at the economy, the economy's doing great because of me. But the immigration crisis, that's the last guy. The vaccine rollout, I did that. But the division in Congress, oh, that's the other guy's fault. Every president. Everyone comes in, and they only take credit for the good things, and they blame the last president. For eight, year, for eight years, Obama blamed Bush. For four years, Trump blamed Obama, right? And, and that's not going to change anytime soon. They celebrate the good things, and they blame somebody else for the bad things, as if one guy can control all that. As if one guy has that kind of authority, even a president. Verse 21. 
Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to him, near to the people, he greeted them. So this is the 200 men that were left behind. They're returning, all their goodies, driving the livestock in front of them, families with them, on cloud nine, and they catch up with the 200. Verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Let's remember for a minute. These are worshipers of God like us. Okay? These are the people that are supposed to trust in God. These are the people that do worship God. Same God we worship. Yes, it's before Jesus enters into humanity. Yes, it's before the gospel is accomplished. It's back when the gospel is promised, but they're waiting on a Messiah, right? In fact, much of the prophetic, messianic uh, prophecies will come through the life of David, through his, his life and through his writings. And, and so a lot of that will come. So they're, they're pre-Jesus believers, right? But what we would call them, even in the New Testament, is the church. They're a part of the church. They're a part of God's people. They're followers of God. And so we can kind of set ourselves back in that, and we see that today. We see that in the church. See, my critique isn't about people that are atheists or Buddhists or Muslims or something else. For us, it's, this is what the church does, right? This is the church that gets divided. Just look on social media. I'll get to open it up once. Drive you crazy, right? But the church divided, arguing about things they can't control anyhow. About people. Well, if this guy was in charge or if this person was in charge, whatever, right? As if they're the solution. If we spent all the time that we do studying politics or fears and conspiracies or people or whatever, if we spent all that time studying Jesus, wouldn't we be in a better place? Like if we knew scripture, like we knew YouTube, wouldn't we be better off? But instead, even before YouTube, Man is man, right? Humanity is humanity. And so they, there they are, followers of Jesus, well, followers of God, but corrupt, right? Verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so. My brothers, with what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, who goes down into battle, so shall his share be, who stays with the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel that day forward to this day. David knows God won the battle. David knows it's not him, right? And see, if they had done this earlier, they had 200 at home and 400 on the road, Ziklag probably would have burned down, right? So he knows, listen, every part, every component in this group is important, right? I know that if Brooke has children and teachers and people and a nursery somewhere where those kids are not only, you know, kind of not in here, but being taught and babies can cry, and diapers can get changed, then I know that we can focus, right? And we know that if somebody's outside greeting somebody, and they're a first-time guest, and just imagine that single mom kind of comes in, hair on fire, kids crying, and she doesn't know where to go, and somebody greets her, you set the stage for being able to hear the gospel, right? You open up a heart for God's word. I know everybody on the team makes this possible, right? So this isn't is me or Pastor Paul. This is a team thing, right? David knows that. David tells him, no, listen, everybody, everybody, everybody's included. Verse 26, when David came to Ziklag, he spent part of his spoil to his friends, 
the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So he sends it back home into Judah. For it was for those in Bethel, and Ramoth, and Negev, and Jatir, and Arior, and Sifmoth, and Eshtomoah, and Rakal, and the cities of Jeremelites, and the cities of the Kenites, and Hormah, Borashan, and Athak, and Hebron, and all the places where David and his men had roamed. Remember, he circles back to all the places that had cared for him when he was on the run from Saul, and he sends them a gift. He just honors them. Hey, listen, if it wasn't for those guys back then, I wouldn't be here now. They cared for me. Let's bless them. What God did, God did. He did it for all of us, right? All the way from Abraham forward. He said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to others. I know that I get blessed to bless others. We know that. David lives that out. So God gives David the victory. The spoil is shared. Generosity is a hallmark of David. So now just think of the people's responses to David, right? One minute, they're trying to make him king ahead of his time, right? And the next minute, they want to stone him. And then he goes out to victory, have victory in battle, and he's back up top again, and then he wants to give away everything to everybody, and some of the guys turn on him. I'm like, the highs and lows, right? Tie that into Palm Sunday. Consider this, right? As we look back 2,000 years, Jesus had turned and pivoted, right? It's like Luke 12, it's, it's John, uh, it's even earlier than that, it's Luke 9, John 12, it's early in the Gospels. And there's language like Jesus just focused on Jerusalem. He turned his head. He turned his face toward Jerusalem. He set his eyes on Jerusalem. He knows where he's headed. And he begins to teach about it. He begins to tell them, listen, so here's the deal. Like, I'm going to return to Jerusalem, but in Jerusalem, no matter what it looks like when I come in, they're going to betray me. And then eventually I have to die. Like, I have to die to cover your sin. He begins to teach them. And over and over and over again, it says they don't understand. And, and you've got to put yourself in their place. Right, so we're talking, and we're like, hey, Richard, so here's the deal. Like, I got to die, but it's cool. I'll be back three days later. He's like, what? <laughs> You've gone back to using, right? I mean, like, like <laughs> something's wrong here, right? So you got to give the people a break. They just don't get it. But with the whole story, we don't often get it, right? But Palm Sunday is that Hosanna, that high, that, that worship. It says this in John 12. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, let's make him king. That's what they say, right? King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. We read that, it sounds super fancy. Kings rode on gigantic stallions. This donkey thing makes zero sense. This is the opposite of a king riding into Jerusalem. And yet they're shouting, Hosanna, praise be to God. Here comes our king, and they're laying down these palm branches in this royal fashion. But that doesn't last very long. It's like three, four days, and they betray him, and they arrest him, and they beat him, they condemn him, they crucify him, and he dies. Right, Sunday, Thursday, that's when, right? Like, it's, it's coming right here. Jesus says this in John 12. He says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He said, yeah, I'm coming in, and it looks good right now. But just within 100 hours, it's not going to look good. 
It's time for me to be glorified, but that comes through death. Right? That comes through a valley I have to walk through, you're going to walk through. That comes from a low, low. But this is going to pick up to the greatest high. You see, the gospel is that. It, it's that God created you, loves you, designed you, has a purpose for you, calls you to be a worshiper of God, to give your life to bringing God glory. But we spend our lives bringing ourselves glory. That's how we get caught up in teams, right? That's how we get divided because we're not focused on bringing God glory. We're trying to figure out glory for ourselves here on earth. And so sin enters into human history and breaks everything. And so we know we're broken from the inside out. We know that we're irredeemably broken, at least in human terms. But God promises, I have a solution. From the, from the garden fall all the way on forward, he proclaims a message of hope. Right there in the garden is Adam and Eve's sin, and he looks at them. He says that the seed of the woman will crush evil will stomp out Satan, even though Satan will bruise his heel. There will be an apparent victory. There's going to be a moment looking forward to the cross so many thousands of years later. But God says, but he will crush your head. He will overcome Satan's sin and death. Jesus will be victorious. But he's going to go through the highs and the lows. He, he starts as God in heaven on a throne and then is born into a broke family in human flesh, on the run as they're trying to kill the Messiah to get rid of this. He'll live a humble life. He'll suffer in the desert. He'll fast for 40 days and be tempted. And yet God will deliver him. He'll go through all the highs and the lows. He'll come into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna and praise of, you need to be our king. But then that same city, that same crowd, those same people are going to shout for his death in just a few days. He'll die, but then he'll be resurrected. He will go through this all, never losing his focus on God. That's where we need to be. Virus comes back, we roll back to online only, virus gets better. In a year we go, what virus, right? Whatever. God is still God. God hasn't changed. Our calling hasn't changed. Biden wins, Trump wins, somebody else wins, somebody else loses, whatever, right? They're there for a minute, right? Saul, he's king right now, he's a loser, he's going to die in five verses, right? <laughs> You're there for a minute, you know what I mean? Right? David's waiting in the wings, he's on the run right now, he's king in a chapter, right? Our job doesn't change. Fix your eyes on Jesus, right? No matter what. Not when things are good, hoot and holler and celebrate, and when things are bad, blame your neighbor. It doesn't say that. 1 Samuel 31, last chapter of 1 Samuel, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Remember, we left off. David was a part of this war party headed towards Israel, right? The Philistines headed towards Israel. Remember, the Philistines are this perpetual problem. 31 chapters, nothing's changed. Philistines still exist. Kind of like coronavirus, right? We're still here, right? So here we are. And we follow David in this little offshoot from the story over here. Now we're back to the story. King Saul, Israel. Remember, he went out and tried to talk to dead Samuel to figure out what God is going to do, and God's like, your time's out, dude. you got a clock, and it's 
You're running out. So David goes back home. We pick the story back up over at the war and Saul and Israel being beaten. Verse 2, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua and the sons of Saul and the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him. In other words, struck him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Verse 4, then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Let these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. I lied to you. Four verses later, not five. He's dead. He's been the problem, right? And the reason Israel is losing is Saul right now. Leaders sometimes lead us down a road that the penalty falls on us. Our sin actually does affect other people. When we sit at home like, oh, who's this going to hurt? Well, it does. Just because you can't see that doesn't mean it's not true. Israel, his son, Saul's sons die because of Saul. They wipe out the royal lineage right here. Verse 5, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The Philistines not only conquer Saul and his family, they push out Israel out of these cities that they're fighting in and they dwell in these cities. Now they take these cities. So what does this mean for you if you're a worshiper of God and you're living in Israel and your king was just killed by the Philistine king, right? And, and the enemy is now living in your home. Do you, do you still trust in God? Is this still Hosanna, Hosanna, yay, you should be king? Or is it somebody's fault? Because that seems to be our option, right? Is it a time of doubting and blaming or do you trust that God is bringing you a new king in this setting? Right? Again, I have no faith in... You get it, right? But here, now they're without a king. Do you trust that God is in charge? That there's a new and better king? Right? When something tragic happens, do we go, you know what, God's got something better for us? Or do we just assume this is bad and it's going to stay bad? Do we begin to blame if you voted for this president or the last president, how do you respond when your team loses? Right? What do we do? Do we panic? Do we blame? Do we tell everybody how bad it's going to be and how much they should be afraid of this? Or do we trust God? Because who's ultimately in charge, Biden or Jesus? For us, for everybody, whether they know it or not, it's Jesus. And for his church, we know Jesus has a plan. We don't know what the plan is. That's our problem. But we know the God who has the plan. That should be our comfort. Verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came out to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols, to the people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. Literally, they take parts of this and give them to false gods, right? And then they, they literally hang Saul from a wall, literally pin him to it, right? They humiliate Saul 
as they've taken victory over Saul and his army. Verse 11, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went out all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan, and they came to Jabesh and they burned him there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So there's still some godly men left in Israel who say, good or bad, this shouldn't be happening. And so they go out at night, and they go out all night, and they collect all these things, and they give him a burial, right? And they fast to God. They take their situation to God. I want to close with these three slides. One, doing the right thing. Godly Israelites honor Saul by burying him and fasting. Doing the godly thing, irregardless of the risk, is how we live live out our trust and dependence in God. When we do the right thing, when we trust in God and we follow that out, we do the right thing regardless of the risk. We do so out of trust in God. John 12, same passage that we were reading about as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It says this in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They don't get it in the moment. We don't always get it in the moment. We think our guy's the right guy. We think this guy's the right guy or that person or whatever, and we just don't get it in the moment. We think this should be done or that should be done or that, man, it would be so much better if we could be back in church and we didn't have to wear a mask. We didn't have to be distanced. Sometimes that's not what God does. Sometimes we don't understand. I'll say this, the last year, has taught us some flaws in the church, for sure. It has shown us some brokenness in the church, that we, the church, don't do well without some of the things that aren't actually built into the church in the first century. This should give us some cause to wake up a little bit, that our dependence is upon things and not upon God. That sometimes those lows completely disrupt our worship. Finally, our limited view. We will not always understand the highs and lows of life, but we can learn to trust God and be obedient to Him in all things. We can, in all circumstances, learn how to trust God and be obedient to God. We can, and we need to, because even if this is behind us, this isn't the last thing, right? There will be something else. There's always something else. There's always another Philistine or a Malachite or something. We need to learn how to trust in God, to worship Him, to obey Him, to be obedient in all things, not just in the easy things. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came and endured the highs, the lows. You came and you, you accepted the shouts of worship. You took the praise and the honor. You always pointed it up to God. But then when the hard times came, you still faithfully sought God didn't matter what people were saying, you were unchanged. You were relentlessly focused on your mission. Jesus, let that be a model for us. Our mission is this world, to reach this world with your message, to see reconciliation, hope, redemption, healing, to bring unity, not division. Forgive us when, like I heard Ashley pray earlier, when we just look like the world around us, and we're comfortable in it, we should be so uncomfortable because we're yours. We're not of this world because of who you are, because of what you've done.
Jesus, teach us to be like you. We don't typically learn in the highs of life. We learn in the lows. Let this last season, and God, I pray that it's done, that we move on out of this. But let it be a space where we learn something about ourselves and about our worship and about the church and about you. So Jesus, we love you. Highs and lows, good days and bad days, team jerseys aside. It's you we follow. It's you we have hope in. So it's in your name we pray.